This week's TribCast is sponsored by Raise Your Hand Texas. Public education has never been more important to Texas. It's crucial to elect leaders who support investing in public school students who will become the future of Texas. Find out more at raiseyourhandtexas.org and Texas Hospital Association. Our need for hospitals didn't end with the pandemic. Join the Texas Hospital Association in supporting hospitals and Texas health. Find out more at THA.org. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune, Texas Tribune Tribcast. Uh, my name is James Barragan. I'm a politics reporter for the Texas Tribune, and I'm filling in for our fearless leader, Matthew Watkins. Um, happy uh, Taylor Swift Midnight's release to those who celebrate. Um, and this week, we are going to be talking politics, 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 uh, because the elections are right around the corner and early voting starts next week. Uh, with me to discuss, uh, we have a full politics team party. Uh, we've got Patrick Svitek of uh, the politics team. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. And Zach Despart. Hey, James. Glad to be here. Good to have you guys. Okay, so we're going to talk about our favorite thing, politics. People are going to get a, a little sneak peek into what we talk about in our Slack channel here uh, at work. Uh, but uh, let's talk first about you guys just had a, a massive lift with this um, Abbott fundraising project. I know you guys have been working on this for a while now um, and put a lot of considerable work into it. Um, it's an interesting project because it is kind of like, well, we know that he can raise a lot of money, right? Um, and it's like, everybody knows that he can raise a lot of money. But what were your big takeaways from it? Like, what do you make out of, uh, the, I found that there were some interesting nuggets in there just about like, you know, how interested he is in fundraising, how people interact with him after they've donated with him. But um, Patrick, if you want to kick it off, what, what kind of stood out to you about this? It's kind of an open secret that he's a great fundraiser, but you guys really went in. Yeah, and, and Zach uh, really dug into, I think, the accountability piece of this. And so I think he can speak best to that. Um, you know, I covered the more political side of the story, which was just looking at, uh, you know, how Abbott fundraises and why he's been successful. And it was, you know, you know, fascinating to kind of learn this portrait of a governor um, who, you know, really almost likes fundraising. Um, you know, you often hear about politicians being, you know, pretty, you know, disdainful, disdainful even of fundraising. But, uh, you know, Abbott is someone who seems to relish um, the competition of fundraising, the measurable success of it, um, you know, being able to hit goals, that kind of thing. Um, so it's, you know, a pretty remarkable piece of the story, I think. Yeah, I mean, like Patrick said, uh, the part I focused on was more of the accountability I thought this was an important story to do to pull back the curtain on how campaign finance works at the statewide level. As large and powerful as Texas, uh, and to be clear, nothing that we revealed was illegal. Um, but I think it is valued as a, as a messy business. Um, they give the most to the governor are the people who show up on, on boards and commissions and 
are appointed to things and do business with the state. And, you know, readers can make whatever they want of those connections, but I think it's, it's important to sort of dive into them. Um, we had spent a bit of time focusing on, you know, uh, the, the most prestigious appointments uh, include like boards of trustees for our big universities, um, and, and they're full of, of high dollar Abbott donors. Um, we also focused on, for example, the one of the largest road builders in the state is one of the biggest donors uh, to the governor, and then they get billions of dollars in textile contracts. So, you know, I think you would see a lot of the same patterns in many states. Uh, governors build tremendous power. And they have plenty of things to offer for that. Uh, but, you know, they say everything is bigger in Texas and everything is bigger when Greg Abbott does it. I think one of the more valuable comparisons was, I mean, yeah, I mean, Texas politics has been like this for a while, but even compared to, to George Bush, to Rick Perry, even adjusting that for inflation, Greg Abbott blows those guys out of the water in terms of the money he raises. And that allows him to, to wield a lot of power. Patrick, I talked a bit about you know, supporting people in the legislature who are going to help enact your agenda and to crush political opponents who, you know, the few of them brave enough to, to mount a primary challenge. So, you know, in Texas, you know, money helps the governor maintain a lot of power and, uh, you know, forward looking, I think it, it positions him to, to maintain that power for quite a long time. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, the conversation around Texas politics often is like, why, why, why can't Democrats, you know, make more inroads, um, even though, you know, the demographic changes of the state obviously benefit them. Um, but a big part of this is money, right? And then Abbott uh, gets a lot of money from uh, people who are interested in the policies that he sets. Um, and, and, then he makes, not, not saying that there's a quid pro quo or anything, but, you know, there is, there are decisions that he makes that benefit those uh, people who donate to him. So I don't know, are there any particular examples that uh, kind of stuck out to you, Zach? Um, just because so many just high powered people in the very important industries donate to him, but any, any particular examples that kind of stood out to you? Yeah, I mean, certainly one of the more visible ones. And uh, we had, the Tribune had reported on this at the time, but uh, after the, the blackouts and, and winter storm in February of 2021, when that legislative session ends, uh, and it ends with some reforms to the power grid that, that some advocates think really didn't do enough to prepare the state and uh, really sort of let a lot of the energy producers off the hook, you see a tremendous amount of money uh, after that legislative session is over given by people in the oil and gas industry to the governor uh, in ways that that did not match their same giving in previous periods. And that struck a lot of people as, you know what, this is something that's broken with our campaign finance system where people who ostensibly get something of a benefit from the legislature in terms of a slap on the wrist. And, you know, they viewed this as this was their thank you to the governor for, for that treatment. Yeah, Patrick, I want to talk to you a little bit about, uh, you know, this, this piece that really stood out to me. I think it was uh, his former aide, Matt Hirsch, who was talking about how uh, Abbott really enjoys the fundraising aspect of it. Um, and he like gets up for it. He, you mentioned he likes the measurable aspect of it. Like you can see how much he fundraises. But, you know, Patrick, you and I have covered campaigns for a long time and we know that some candidates just hate it. I mean, it is sort of sometimes they view it as kind of demeaning. They have to go like tap dance for money, you know, uh, but Governor Abbott really likes it. And, I, you know, you can tell by the amount of money he raises and by how much effort he puts into it that, 
how does that make him stand out in terms of other candidates? I just thought that was like such a, a telling piece of it. Like he really likes this part. Uh, how, how does that make him different from other candidates for, uh, perhaps? Yeah, like you said, I mean, some candidates have to be, you know, dragged kicking to, uh, you know, to, to fundraise, to do call time, which is basically just sitting in a, you know, in a room in your campaign headquarters, uh, running through lists of donors, asking them for money. Some candidates really hate that. Abbott seems to uh, enjoy it. And, you know, we have one, you know, source quoted in the story or one source saying in the story um, that, you know, he's never seen Abbott, um, you know, pass up an opportunity for call time just because he doesn't feel like doing it. And maybe to people outside politics, like, you know, that doesn't seem remarkable. But to those of us inside politics, um, you know, you do hear about like candidates and politicians all the time, like skipping out on their fundraising, um, you know, commitments because it's just such a slog. It's, it's annoying. Um, you know, they don't like the idea of, you know, having to call up people they sometimes barely know and ask them for money. Um, so, you know, but Abbott, you know, I think he, and he's built, you know, he, he enjoys it, but he's built the relationships. So it's like, you know, he's talking with people who he already knows uh, more so than the average uh, politician. And, you know, they're, they're titans of business in many cases, um, you know, who wouldn't want to get them on the phone and <laughs> talk with them a little bit and, and bend their ear and then maybe ask for some money. And so, yes, he enjoys it, but he's ascended to this level in politics where, um, you know, he, he's not necessarily, you know, like some first time candidate having to call up people he barely knows, um, you know, and make awkward asks for money. I mean, these are people he, you know, at least these big donors, these are people he already largely knows and in some cases has pretty close personal uh, relationships with. Yeah, because he ingratiates himself to them as well, right? He makes these calls and says, hey, what's going on in your neck of the woods? Even sometimes there, there was that line that you guys had in there that he like, uh, you know, he's, he's shameless. He like dials for dollars or something. But he also calls when there's he doesn't have an ask. And he's just like, hey, I read this in your local paper. And uh, what's going on with this? I thought that one was really interesting. I, I, I did pick up on the fact that he's a night owl, which I've also noticed sometimes he tweets right. in the night and i'm yeah, saying yeah. doing, governor but um maybe he's doing all this reading and stuff uh but i thought that was really interesting and the other thing that i picked up on was uh, this this whole thing about you know dick weekly of um um Texans for lawsuit reform brought up the critical race theory thing. I don't know if I bought that one but it is a great example of like hey people are bringing me these issues and and then I act on them. And if it's like a high powered donor like Dick Weekly, uh, then I'm going to pay a little bit more close attention to it. I just I, I thought that particular detail was interesting. And I think it speaks if you can talk a little bit about this, Patrick, about the, you know, obviously they have access. Obviously, they built these relationships. And when a random person brings up the issue, uh, you know, maybe he considers it, maybe he doesn't. But if someone that, you know, gives them a lot of dollars and he gets on the phone every once in a while, like brings it up, it makes a difference, right? Yeah, I mean, this is a great point because it speaks to what I would call like the difference between what I'd call soft influence and hard influence. I mean, right. sometimes in politics, you have a straight up quid pro quo, right? I mean, you know, we've done reporting on those kinds of things. There's been reporting on that. But, but more often, it's about what I would distinguish here as soft influence, which is that these donors... Um, you know, these large donors have disproportionately easy access 
to the governor um, a kind of access that average voters like you or me, well, we're part of the media, so we have some, <laughs> some level of access to the governor, but average voters, like just people out in the street don't have to the governor. And so when someone like Jeff Hildebrand, for example, is a Houston businessman who, you know, who was part of this group of men who brought Abbott the, the CRT book, alleged CRT book, um, you know, the fact that he is able just to get a meeting with the governor to show him this book that like tells you all you need to know about the level of access there, right? Like, you know, the average, you know, worker at Whataburger, you know, on, on, on the corner here in San Antonio where I'm at, you know, is not going to get a meeting with the governor like Jeff Hildebrand is going to get a meeting with the governor and get that opportunity to, you know, bend his ear on something, you know, express some kind of concern. And so it's that soft influence, I think, that is is often more um, prevalent than the hard influence of, you know, I give you this check, you do this for me, you know, wink, wink, nod, nod, that kind of thing. Right. Uh, Zach, do you have any other big takeaways from the project? I mean, I, I like that we sort of finished the, the story with a, a forward looking word is Abbott go from here uh, angle. And I think a lot of that centers around, you know, will he consider running for president? Uh, obviously, <clears throat> George Bush did that very successfully. Rick Perry did that very unsuccessfully. Uh, an open question, of course, is, is whether Trump decides to enter the Republican primary. But you know, there's a question about, you know, does the amount of money that, that Abbott has really matter at the national level? I mean, I think he would expose himself to a, a level of scrutiny from reporters and from the public that he's not used to doing. Um, and I'm not sure, you know, some of our, our sources speculated about, like, you know, the, the governor's very judicial, lawyerly personality. I'm not sure if that, that fits very well in a Republican primary. But, you know, I think people had told us, and this sort of surprised me, but it, it makes sense, but, you know, people had, and this is one of our lead quotes, like, people have underestimated Greg Abbott for 20 years, and, and they have done that at their peril. I mean, the man has run seven statewide elections. He's won all of them. He's well positioned to win his eighth in a row. Uh, he has proven that, that when he decides to enter a race, you know, he's uh, got a good strategy for winning it. So I think it's hard to discount him in, in the presidential primary, but I, I think it would be a very different kind of challenge than he is used to in this state. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and that's a great point. I think he would be exposed to like more press scrutiny. I think he would also be exposed if he had a national run, he's got to go get those swing voters and he's got to go talk to Democrats, something that he hasn't really had to do here in Texas because Republicans just dominate so much. So I think those are really, really interesting points. The last thing I want to talk about here uh, to wrap up this segment of the podcast, um, you mentioned the races he's run and I thought one great note that you guys had in there was that he's not lost any or he's not won any by less than 13 points I think you guys had in there which really stood out to me I was like oh my gosh like this guy is really blowing everyone out of the water uh Patrick you wrote about the UT uh UT poll that came out uh Friday morning I think it's got him 11 points uh ahead of uh O'Rourke uh with likely voters uh similar troubles for the other Democratic candidates. I think uh, Dan Patrick is ahead 15 points. Ken Paxton is ahead 14 points, uh, which is wild looking at other polls. But what do you all make of that? I mean, that spells trouble, right, for uh, for Democrats uh, as we as we wait for uh, early voting next week. Well, what we're seeing here with with any polling is ever since Labor Day, we're seeing one by one a lot of pollsters switching their you know, their sample from registered voters to likely voters. And when you make that transition, 
um, at least in a state like Texas, um, it tends to favor uh, the Republicans because, uh, you know, the likely voters in Texas in, in a red state like Texas are going to be the kinds of voters that have continuously reliably showed up for elections in Texas. And so there is going to be kind of an inherent, I think, Republican bias and bias may not even be the right word because that, that suggests it's inaccurate. It, it may be very well, maybe accurate, but there, there is going to be, I think, um, a Republican favoring when you switch from registered voters to likely voters in Texas. And so I think this poll, you know, they switched from registered voters to likely voters. Their last poll had added up five, but that was just with registered voters. Now they've switched to likely voters. Um, and to their credit, they, they explain in their polling um, how they, they switched to likely voters. They, they had a group of 1,200 registered voters, um, and then they filtered it um, based on whether those voters said they have voted in every election in the past two to three years, or whether they, uh, you know, have said, you know, on a scale of one to 10, there are nine or 10 on how likely they are to vote. And so, you know, you can argue with that or scrutinize that, but they're being transparent, which we always want with polling about how they arrived at likely voters. And so I think that's a, just methodologically, that's a really important point to make about this latest poll from them. Um, you know, having Abbott up by 11 with likely voters is not, you know, too far out of the range of outcomes we've seen. There was a UT Tyler poll of, I, th I think, likely voters in September that had Abbott up 11. We have seen some polls more recently that have had Abbott's margin a little smaller at eight or seven among likely voters. Um, point that Jim Henson, the, the, the pollster, was making to me in, in conversations about his, his latest poll that, that we published um, on Friday morning um, is that, you know, we're, we're kind of snapping back into the election environment that we kind of anticipated that we'd have going into this election cycle, which is that nationally, this is not going to be a good election cycle for the Democrats. You have a, a new Democratic president going through his um, you know, first midterms. History suggests that's going to be rough for him. And on top of that all, Texas you know, is still a red state. Um, and so, you know, the way I, you know, increasingly, you know, talk about it is, you know, it's shaping up to be a red, a red year in a red state. And so you would expect, um, you know, Republicans to be winning above their typical baseline if those are the conditions that exist. Um, that all being said, I know Democrats, um, you know, disagree with any polling at this point because they believe it doesn't capture the new voters uh, that they're turning out and that they're introducing into the uh, electorate. Um, you know, that is, a, that is a valid point to make. That, is a, that has been the challenge and the point that Democrats have been making every statewide election that we've all been alive. Um, yeah, that is cool election. Results, at least on this uh, podcast. So it's, it's really the onus is on them once again to prove that this electorate is changing or that they are changing this electorate. Yeah. Zach, uh, final word in this segment, uh, Rochelle Garza, who many see as the, you know, the most competitive uh, Democrat, you know, she'd been close in two, three points with registered voters. Now she's 14 points behind with likely voters kind of takes the wind out of her sails. But what do you, what do you make of these polls? I mean, I think her challenge really from the beginning has been letting people know who Rochelle Garza is. And I think the her starting her campaign in earliest, not really until after Labor Day is really going to hurt her. Um, and it's just another year where Democrats really struggle to get their name out there. And I think that that uh, polling, especially when you switch to likely voters, is really going to reflect that. Great. Uh, oh, Patrick, do you want to say something? I'm just going to add, I, I don't, you know, I'll just say this right now. I, I don't think even Ken Paxton believes he's up by 14 points. <laughs> I think uh, Ken Paxton uh, or even maybe his campaign 
Um, you know, I don't want to, whatever. I, <laughs> Ken Paxton's <laughs> campaign, I'm, I'm sure they were shocked to wake up this morning and learn that he's up by 14 points. Um, you know, he is running a, you know, straight negative TV ad against Rochelle Garza right now, spending, you know, it's kind of statewide money that you'd spend when you have a serious uh, challenge on your hands. And so I don't think he's up by 14 points, um, you know, and just on this, I would just point out on this difference between registered voters and likely voters and how that can produce sometimes very different results. We had a, a, a democratic poll come out uh, yeah, on Thursday um, that showed Rochelle Garza trailing Paxton only by two points, but that was among registered voters. And so we switched to likely voters in this UT poll and Paxton suddenly up by 14. And so um, I would I would imagine that the actual margin right now is somewhere between uh, Paxton by two and Paxton by 14. But it just goes to show you how that the, the sample changing can really produce a different result. Well, thanks, Patrick, for reminding us that the only poll that matters is on election day. And uh, we'll end this segment, but stick around. We're going to talk Lena Hidalgo after the break. Lone Star College works for Texas, providing real-world work training in state-of-the-art facilities to meet employers' demands. Find out more at lonestar.edu. And Methodist Healthcare Ministries is committed to health equity striving to create more fair and just opportunities for all to thrive. Learn more at mhm.org. Okay, and we're back. Uh, so let's get right into it. Uh, Lena Hidalgo running for re-election as Harris County judge uh, against Republican Alexa Alexandra Del Moral Miller. <laughs> uh, sometimes I struggle with the name, but this has been a conversation starter, a conversation continuer, uh, for a couple of weeks now, the Houston Chronicle endorsed Mueller. Uh, that's led to a lot of chatter. Democrats obviously not happy. This one has been a talker at the Texas Tribune. So let's get into it, guys. Uh, Zach, what is going on over there? <laughs> Why is this race so close? Uh, oh, Lena Hidalgo, I thought she was a rising star. I thought she was uh, the next uh, statewide uh, star running on the Democratic ticket. Either or, I guess. I mean, first things first, our colleague Josh Vector wrote a story on this race earlier this week. Please give it a read. Uh, yes, I mean, quick background. I mean, I used to cover um, Hidalgo in the county for the Houston Chronicle, so I, I followed her first race uh, in the last four years. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, Hidalgo uh, wins in 2018. That's the, you know, Beto year really does really well. She barely beats a three-term Republican incumbent, moderate, one of the few left in the state, very popular, real upset, real shock. Uh, flips control of the county of Christmas Court for the first time since, again, we've been alive. Um, and, the, you know, she's still viewed as a, a rising star in the Democratic Party, which has a short bench in Texas. She is 31 years old right now, which is still pretty young. Uh, she was elected uh, without having any managerial experience. It was a real wild card, honestly. Um, I think that is mostly panned out experience-wise. She has shown that she can handle um, disasters. She's dealt with tropical storms, chemical fires, of course, the COVID pandemic for the first two years of her tenure. Um, so the question James posed, why is she so you know, in, in such bad shape for re-election? Uh, largely because of crime. Uh, and, and more importantly, the perception of crime by enough voters in Harris County to make this an issue. Um, the uh, Democratic Party and uh, under Hidalgo has really had this 
this big expansive view of what county government can do. Historically, it builds roads, it builds bridges, it maintains infrastructure, it runs law enforcement, it runs the jails. Uh, what they want to do is have social services and expand and do more of a municipal type of government. Republicans have, have constantly hit her on, you are straying from you know, the traditional mandate of what county government is supposed to do. A big pillar of that is crime. Uh, Houston and Harris County have seen an uptick in violent crime the past few years. That is not in any way different than how uh, other major American cities have, have had crime. Um, there is a perception, and this is certainly uh, what Republicans have been hitting on, that Hidalgo is not taking this sufficiently seriously. Uh, an interesting wrinkle is uh, Hidalgo has constantly been fighting with the district attorney in Harris County about right. crime. The district attorney is also a Democrat. Right. Um, and she, you know, her political allies basically at this point are Republicans. Um, there has been this whole uh, uh, the rhetoric from the constables in Harris County that uh, Hidalgo and her government are defunding the police. Um, it's, it's not technically true. She's increased the law enforcement budget every year she's been in office, but Republicans have really seized on, well, you're not, not raising it by enough. Uh, and that is the, the primary issue in which they're running this election. Uh, Mueller is, is interesting. She, she wins a crowded Republican primary. She's got a lot of similarities to Hidalgo. She is a, a woman in her mid thirties. Um, she doesn't have any experience in politics. All the attacks that Republicans have made of, of Hidalgo's inexperience would be applicable to, to Mueller here. Um, but she seems, and, um, and clearly went over the, the Houston Chronicle's editorial board as, as someone who is, is pragmatic, is down to earth, is willing to do the nuts and bolts of county government, tackle this crime issue. Uh, and she has pissed herself as, you know what, Hidalgo is focusing on all these other things that are nice, but aren't the most important things and aren't the things that are gonna keep your family safe. I will focus on those things. I will fund those things vote for me. And, and that's her best shot. So that's basically the state of, of the race at this point. Yeah. She was, that, oh, go ahead. Ed. I was going to say, and, and to that point, Hidalgo, Hidalgo really wants to uh, nationalize and statewide eyes, uh, if that's a word, this race. If you look at her TV ads or you look at her side's TV ads, at least um, she's tying Mueller to Trump um, based on a, a TV interview that Mueller uh, – and it unfortunately gave her she had a picture of Donald Trump over her right shoulder or something like that, which is like, a, uh, you know, I'm sure the Democratic makers, that's like you don't get gifts like that. That's, that's, um, that's before the consultants came on that, that often in a race like this. Um, and so she's trying to tire to Trump and she's tying her to Abbott when it comes to abortion. And, you know, Mueller has stayed silent, uh, more or less on the current abortion restrictions in Texas, saying that they're not relevant to the job of county judge. Obviously, Democrats disagree with that. Um, but it's it's interesting to see uh, Lena Dalgo's side really try to inject these statewide and national themes into the race, um, you know, to try to paint Mueller as this uh, extremist. And, and something I'm interested in Zach's thoughts, too, I think I think why this race is um, especially enticing for Republicans across the state is because if, if Mueller is elected, I, I think she would be um, a more reliable Republican ally than Ed Emmett was by the, the by the end of his term. I mean, we, we talk about you know, the Ed Emmett legacy by the time, you know, he ran for reelection in 18, he seemed a little bit estranged from like statewide leadership, right? He'd been at odds over Hurricane Harvey, if I remember correctly. Yeah, right. no, I, I love this, this fan fiction alternative Harris County history. 
Um, going down. <laughs> Please, that's why you're here. I, I make this point to people a lot where um, people talk about uh, Hidalgo and, and Abbott really clashed a lot during the pandemic. Uh, he really had everyone yeah. who tried yeah. to have a mask mandate, extend the sort of the, the lockdown period for Harris County. Um, Ed Emmett was on a trajectory politically where he would have had a lot of those similar fights with the governor. I think the governor would have, you know, tried to avoid having public spats with a, a local Republican elected official. But for people who don't know Harris County politics, I would put um, Ed Emmett and Joe Strauss in a very similar bucket, politically speaking. Um, so with Mueller, I think Mueller, by the, the fact that she is uh, new to politics, and it is really benefiting greatly from uh, sort of more conservative donors and ideologues in this race. Uh, the crazy anecdote in this is uh, Mueller, in the last fundraising period, had raised more money than any Republican candidate except for Greg Abbott. That is insane in a local race. I mean, Harris County is huge, but it's not 30 million people huge. Um, so she, uh, if she wins, uh, it will be certainly in part based on the money that people have dumped into the race you know, from, from conservatives. I'm not sure would, I follow the I think we're saying the same thing, right? <laughs> you would agree with what I posited, though, that yeah. based on the trajectory that you said Emmett was on in terms of the tension he had with statewide leadership, in, in Mueller, statewide Republicans have an opportunity to not only flip this office, but probably get a more responsive Republican as far as their concerns are, go in that office, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you dance with the date that brought you. I mean, right. that, I yeah, mean yeah. that's pretty much the deal. I agree. Yeah. Well, it, it, yeah, it's interesting. And I think it, w w I really hadn't really been paying super close attention to this race until the Chronicle endorsement came out. And I watched the video with it. And I think that's I mean, this is, uh, you know, I, you can you can argue about uh, Hidalgo and her effectiveness. I think she's been quite effective. I think they can hit her on the crime issue, however. And, and that's a big one. Obviously, Republicans if, if you've been in politics of any kind, you know Republicans are going to come after you on crime. And I think this is just overall a messaging war. I mean, I think Hidalgo has had her successes as a, you know, disaster pandemic executive, done really, really well on those issues, stood up to Abbott, worked together with the state in some ways better than, let's say, Clay Jenkins um, in, in Dallas. Um, so she has her wins. But, you know, uh, Miller also is really good on message. I mean, she she's a good candidate, it seems like. Um, she's got her messaging strong, and she is clear, concise, and strong. If you watch that Chronicle editorial video, I mean, she kind of obliterates Hidalgo. Hidalgo is like kind of like, you know, back and forth, laying out all these stats as Democrats do. And Miller is just like, but crime, <laughs> crime, crime, crime. And it's just like, it's just the messaging. It's the politics of it, which is why it's like so interesting to me. And sure, we can argue. And I'm sure I'm looking at you, Zach. Yeah. <laughs> but like, we can argue about, you know, how much crime and whether it's actually as high as Republicans say it is. But at the end of the day, what politics sometimes is just about how voters feel. And if you look at that Chronicle endorsement, they have people who have been affected by, uh, by, by the crime in Harris County, and they have real life issues that pulls at the heartstrings. And I think that's what's really resonating with people. Now, I'm not saying that Mueller is going to win, or I, I really don't know. Um, but the campaign, I think, has been well run, and she's hit her points really well. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, I think that this issue highlights the difference between being good at policy and being good at politics, because sometimes they align and sometimes they are quite different. And I think, uh, not just Hidalgo, but I think, think Democrats, criminal justice reformers in general, sometimes struggle on this. Um, you know, Hidalgo is very sharp. She is very academically minded. 
uh, I will say that she has done, just talking about crime, some things that might have been like policy-wise smart, politically very obtuse. And a quick example where um, she had uh, ordered a top-down review of all county government, uh, county departments a few years ago to, to look for efficiencies. And one of the, the recommendations that this firm comes back with is you really should consolidate or get rid of all the constables offices in Harris County, which is a huge layer mm-hmm. of law enforcement. And there was a great academic argument for doing that, for all the inefficiencies in that, for the inexpertise in that. Politically, it's terrible. Right. People love their local constables, especially in the suburbs, especially outside, you know, and in, in those like moderate and Republican leaning areas. So they've constantly hit her for that. And that's just one example of, I understand why you did it, but you have to stand and win an election to do the things you want to do. And this right. is going to hurt you. Yeah. I think it's also interesting, like if she's technically raised the budget, I mean, and you know, Republicans are going to come for you on crime, like, get, you know, put your arm around a cop, <laughs> put your arm around a cop and get them to endorse you in a, in a video. I mean, G- Governor Abbott does it really well, uh, uses law enforcement in, in his border security videos. I mean, you just got to do the things that you got to do to like win an election. The other thing I, I will say also is that like, uh, this is also a good opportunity for Lena Hidalgo, you know, if she is still wants to be on that trajectory, you know, uh, you know, iron sharpens iron. And if she does want to continue on her upward trajectory, it's not probably not a bad thing to be in a competitive race. I think that she does probably have to learn some things about politics. And she, she seems like a candidate who wants to be above it all. Um, you know, no, no cheap shots, no, none of that low blow stuff. But, you know, at the end of the day, politics is a full contact sport. And I think maybe uh, maybe some more politicking needed to happen. But again, a good opportunity for her, perhaps, if she uh, gets reelected and can say, hey, I had a competitive race under my belt. You probably also learned some things. I don't know. What, what do you make of that thought, Patrick? Am I just kind of speaking out of school here? Yeah, like you said, iron, iron sharpens iron. I mean, if she can get through this reelect, I mean, it, you know, in, in a place like Harris County, um, then, you know, that's 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 a great case to make that you're battle tested for statewide, given that Harris County is, um, you know, depending on the election cycle, a bit of a microcosm of the, uh, you know, statewide uh, electorate. Obviously, there's not as much rural. Um, but, you know, if you look at statewide margins inside Harris County, sometimes it mirrors statewide um, statewide margins. I thought speaking of the, just like her questionable politics, um, I thought one of the most interesting episodes in this race so far was maybe like two or it was like two months ago is late summer when her and some of the commissioners held a press conference that was ostensibly about getting ahead of this narrative that they were defunding uh, the police, right? It was kind of like a proactive news conference to talk about the investments they had been making in law enforcement. And Hidalgo ends up getting into a very animated exchange with the reporter over whether they have defunded the police. And that becomes the headline out of it. And so it was, I think, politically a well-intentioned press conference. Um, but the way that exchange went down, um, you know, ended up making it um, a, like a, a little bit off message. And so I think that was an interesting episode. Which, which I think speaks to the inexperience. You know, Zach, you talked about the lack of managerial experience. I think that's not a knock that you can use on her now. I mean, she's had four years running one of the biggest counties, one of the biggest governments in, in the country. Um, so there's no lack of managerial experience. But perhaps this, you know, press conference where she gets into it with, you know, talking about the media is making this an issue and that becomes the headline. That is some political inexperience, which is sort of what we're talking about right now, right? I mean, there is just a, a lack of like political experience, a lack of knowing like where the hits are going to come from. You, you know, the oppo is coming if you're an experienced candidate and you 
usually have a well-prepared response. I mean, Mueller seems to have a well-prepared response to these uh, comments from Hidalgo that she's a, you know, a Trumper and an election denier. But th there is some political inexperience, right, Zach? I'd say so, yeah. I mean, I think early on um, in her tenure, she, like the analogy was like, she was swinging at too many pitches. I didn't know how to like let some stuff go. Um, and I think that's hard as, as, a, as a, a newer politician figuring out where your footing is. Um, I think that she had hoped that it would be better now. I, I think the fact that, as Patrick mentioned, she is nationalizing and statewide-izing a lot of the issues in this race and not running on her record is, is a cause for concern among, you know, people who are Democrats in Harris County. I, I have been a bit surprised that um, there, there are plenty of Democratic uh, commissioners with, with tons of campaign money and there are plenty of, of donors around the state. Um, her fundraising has not, you know, dollar for dollar been able to match Mueller in, in ways that I'm surprised because, I mean, this is a race that Democrats should easily defend. You know, her, her one of only saving graces is this is a, a county that Biden won by 15 and or by 13, and it's one that um, Beto carried heavily in 18. So I think if she survived this largely based on, on the makeup of, of Harris County, if this was a race in Tarrant County, I think she'd be toast. And I'll just add too, because I feel like we've been... Uh... Uh, we've been uh, spending the past several minutes being somewhat critical of, of Hidalgo. But for Mueller, there's definitely political risk in just not engaging on some of these statewide and national issues, right? I mean, we live in a, a day and age where voters expect even, you know, there are significant amounts of voters that expect their local elected officials to have positions, um, you know, on these issues. And so, you know, when she doesn't have any opinion to offer on abortion, like that, there is political risk in that. And, um, you know, I think that that should, that should just be, uh, you know, that should be noted as well. And especially in a Biden plus, you know, 13 County, you're going to have, you know, voters who are up for grabs who want you to have an opinion on that. So she's obviously made the calculation that she can win without taking a hard position on something like abortion rights. Yep. Well, we'll find out in a couple of weeks. I think, uh, thank you guys uh, for being on the show. Thanks for this great discussion. Um, and that's that's it for our show this week. Uh, please join us ne next week and uh, keep uh, tabs on texastribune.org. We're going to have a lot of great coverage. And of course, thank you to our sponsors, Raise Your Hand Texas, the Texas Hospital Association, Lone Star College, and Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas. Thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you next week. Go Astros. Join the Texas Tribune for upcoming events happening in person and streaming virtually. November 17th and 18th in Lubbock, we'll explore the future of rural Texas with community leaders, local lawmakers, and others. Then, on December 8th in Austin, we'll preview what's to come in the 2023 legislative session and what it will mean for Texans. Learn more and RSVP at texastribune.org slash events.